when you hear the phrase, biblical principles of health, what do you think about? What do you think about? What comes into your mind when you hear that phrase, biblical principles of health? Probably the dietary laws in Leviticus, clean and unclean meats. Maybe the... The quarantine laws, you know, if you're sick, you stay away from people until you get better. Maybe, uh, you know, Moses also mentions about don't eat fat or blood. These are things that were not to be consumed as food for human beings. But bearing human waste, you do that, you break up the life cycles of parasites and other infectious diseases. For those of you that are into cooking, you could read Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 14. talks about Ezekiel's bread. It's not wonder bread. You know, it's a multi-grain bread. It has a lot of fiber, a lot of other nutrients in it. You might read Proverbs 24 and Proverbs 25. Proverbs 24 says, eat honey because it's good. And in Proverbs 25, it says, don't eat too much honey or you'll get sick. Now, these are biblical principles that relate to health and promote health. Paul says in Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your oft infirmities. But the Bible also says don't get drunk. So there's, there's a balance in all of these things. The biblical principles I've just mentioned protect against cancer, protect against heart disease, diabetes, infectious diseases. And these are all physical health uh, aspects. But what about mental health and spiritual health? What scriptures pop into your mind when you hear the phrase mental and spiritual health? You might be scratching (laughs) a while. Are there any that relate to mental and spiritual health? Well, I want to talk about some of those things today. I've entitled the sermon... Biblical Principles of Mental and Spiritual Health. Biblical Principles of Mental and Spiritual Health. And I want to devote the sermon to that, and I want to make it practical, I want to make it useful, and I hope it will be interesting and profitable at the same time. Now, why talk about mental and spiritual health in a sermon? How does this relate to you? I just want to mention a few statistics. The World Health Organization has noticed that the third leading cause of disability in the world, the third leading cause of disability in the world is mental illness. That's number three behind heart disease uh, and infectious disease. So it's not a little thing. It's not a little thing. It's a big thing. We talk about mental illness. We're talking about anxiety, depression, OCD, this obsessive compulsive disorder, delusions, fears, phobias, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar diseases, and a number of things like that. It all falls under this this category of uh, mental illness. Depression, especially clinical depression, you might want to define that just very briefly. If you get upset today or upset tomorrow, that's not clinical depression. Clinical depression is something that lasts for weeks or months where you're just dysfunctional. You know, you're angry, you're frustrated, you're 
sad, uh, loss of appetite, loss of interest in jobs or whatever. And if this goes on for a long period of time, they classify it as clinical depression. And what's interesting, just from an academic standpoint, the clinical depression ranks about number eight in low-income countries. In other words, it's one of the, it's the eighth cause of disability in low-income countries. But it's a number one cause of disability in mid- to high-income countries. In other words, more money doesn't solve the problem. You know, more technology doesn't solve the problem. There's something else going on. In America, one out of five persons, over 42 million people, are dealing with mental illness. And one little test I came across was, guy asked his doctor, how can I tell whether I have a mental illness or not? He said, one out of five have it. Why don't you go talk to at least four other people? And if they're okay, then it, you have the problem. Because <laughs> you're the one out of five. And that's not really the way to diagnose things. But uh, some people that put this information together have a sense of humor. College students, and this is sobering. Depression has doubled among college students in the last 15 years. And suicide has tripled tripled among college students in the last 15 years because the number of young people is having problems dealing with reality. And there's something wrong. There's something wrong. We need to ask, what have we done wrong? Are there biblical principles that we've broken or been unaware of or overlooked? I want to talk about some of these things today, some biblical principles that will promote Health, not only health physically, but mental health. Promote mental health as well as prevent mental illness and difficulties that way. If we just look at what has happened over the last 200 years, as we see mental health and mental issues developing uh, with more prevalence today, what else has happened over the last century or two that may contribute to the problems that we're dealing with today? One of the things you look at, whenever you look at epidemiology, the the study of why things happen, why health problems develop, and you look at broad areas, one of the things that's happened over the last 200 years has been a mass movement of people from rural areas into cities. You know, I think one of the songs that people used to sing about, people don't like to stay down on the farm anymore. They they want to come up to the city where all the action is. You know, my uncle had a dairy farm in Pennsylvania, and that's basically what happened to the second generation of those farmers. That most of the farms, about 100 acres, they raised 20, 30 cattle. Uh, they were selling milk, they were shipping the milk and raising the, um, the crops to feed the cows. But the second generation moved away. One kid got a job in a steel mill in Pittsburgh, another one got a job someplace else, and basically, uh, what's happened to those farms now, they're building houses there. Uh, I think there's one young person that did stay on the farm, and he's managing two or three other farms. But they, they've moved away because the jobs weren't there, the salaries weren't there, and, and the fun wasn't there. So they moved away. So this mass migration. In 1790, 95% of Americans lived in rural areas. 95% of people lived in rural areas in America. 
about 5% lived in cities. Today, almost 80% of our population lives in cities, and maybe about 20% live in rural areas. You might think so. What's the big deal? What they found is that people that are during this period of time, anxieties have increased 20% and mood disorders have increased 40%. Now, does this cause and effect? I don't know that we could say that, but there's a link between the two. And when you move into cities, what's it like living in a city? You got horns blowing, you got sirens going off, you got neon lights blinking on and off and on and off. People don't spread out, they are cramped together beside each other, on top of each other, underneath each other. I remember I rented an apartment with another kid when I was going to graduate school in Mississippi. And we got an apartment that has a swimming pool in the center and the apartments around the edges and the guy was a traveling salesman that lived in an apartment right down below us. And he would come home Friday afternoon and turn on his hi-fi. And the dust would start coming out of our carpet because it was just the vibration. <laughs> and my roommate started jumping up and down on the floor, and the guy downstairs got a broom handle and was beating on the ceiling. I mean, this is what happens whenever you join house to house. You put people together that way. The apartments on our floor were laid out just opposite each other. Our living room was in the front, and our bedrooms, living room and kitchen were in the front, and the bedrooms were in the back. The apartments next to, next to us, the bedrooms were in the front, and the the, uh, <clears throat> the kitchen was in the back. So they're just opposite. We would go to bed about 10.30 at night, and the lady next door turned on her dishwasher about 10.30 at night, <laughs> right through the wall. So we're just about to sleep, and all of a sudden you hear, <laughs> you felt like pounding on the wall. Uh, but this is the joy and the convenience <laughs> of living in a city. And this is why there appears to be mood disorders increase, anxieties increase, a lot of other things increase. People that are born and raised in cities are twice as likely to develop schizophrenia as people that live in the country. And these are just things you can come across of what we've done to ourselves without fully understanding what we're doing. Another one of the consequences of moving from rural areas into the city is a loss of contact with nature. A loss of contact with the natural world. Because you just don't see it. Everything is concrete and steel and glass. You don't have green grass. You don't have trees. You don't have birds unless they're pigeons or starlings or something like that that want to mess up everything. Uh, it's a very different uh, lifestyle. Biblical principle number one. I'm going to go through three of these this afternoon. Biblical principle number one is contact with nature is important. Contact with nature, the natural world, is important for mental and spiritual health. I'm not going to be promoting nature worship. I'm not going to encourage you when you go out of here today to go hug a tree. (laughs) That's not the direction we're going to go. 
We're going to talk about some things from the Bible, and we're going to talk about some things from scientific research. And these are not theories. These are things that fit together. They're very practical, and they also fit with uh, biblical principles. came across a study a number of years ago that was done on hospital patients. And they set up an experiment where hospital patients after surgery, some would look out a window. They just happened to have a window in their room, and they could see trees, they could see flowers, they could see some water, versus others that could not, that didn't have a window. They looked at a wall. And the people that could look out the window and see the trees and see the water and so on improved more quickly. They didn't give the nurses a bad time. <laughs> They were more relaxed. And there's been dozens of studies since then that have teased this out even more. A person that can look out a window and see the trees, see the wind blowing in the trees, see the Canadian geese like we have here in Charlotte that have never seen Canada, but they they make it all around Charlotte. But just seeing wildlife in a natural setting They'll have lower heart rates, lower blood pressure. Their immune system is stronger. These are just studies. They do the studies on the people. There's actually a benefit from having contact with nature. But it's not only window views. You get the same effect if you get a nice big picture of a natural scene with mountains, with waterfalls, with wildlife, The same thing happens. You spend some time looking at that. Uh, Your blood pressure will go down. You'll feel better, uh, even if you live in a city. But these are things that actually happen with waterfalls, a peaceful scene. In fact, the more dramatic the picture, the more uh, physiological effects you'll get. I remember when I first went out to... uh, Pasadena went up to Yosemite Valley. They call it the, what is it, the the Incredible Valley. Because it's just so stunning. You come through a tunnel and you look out there and here's Half Dome over here. It looks like somebody took a big rock and cut it right in half. (laughs) You've got El Capitan over here that they climb up. It takes them two or three days sometimes. Then they sleep on these pinions uh, and a rope into the rock. But you just look out there. You can see, especially in the springtime. The waterfalls are just roaring. It's just stunning. It just takes your breath away. But if you can find a picture like that, put it on your wall. I remember I had another picture that uh, one of our faculty members, he was from Norway. And I had this picture. I paid all of $15 for it. But it was a fjord up in Norway. And it had about five or six or seven Viking ships sailing up the fjord. Now, it was very peaceful to look at, but if you had just been where they had just been, <laughs> it wouldn't be a very peaceful thing. <laughs> but here were these, these Viking ships sailing with the big sails, and you got these mountains on both sides and the blue water, and it was just it was stunning just to look at. But just views of nature, views what God has created, has a calming effect on the human body and a calming effect on the human mind. Can you compare that? You look at a scene where there's fire trucks and, and used car lots and old warehouses and starlings and pigeons and <laughs> whatever. Uh, 
that's not relaxing in many cases. Kind of, ah, let me get out of here. But these are the impacts that can influence how we think, what we think about, how we feel. But it's not just pictures, it's also sounds of nature. Sounds of nature. Sometimes you can buy these little mechanical things where when you're playing in music uh, to listen to, it's got waves. You can hear the waves coming in and going out, going in and going out. Those of you that have been to the face down along the Gulf, if you've got a room that looks out over the ocean, it's nice just to leave the door open at night and hear the waves coming in. It's very relaxing. It's very soothing. Uh, <clears throat> hearing rain. When I first went to Georgia, I think uh, somebody gave me a little gift of a, a tape or a CD of uh, the song Rainy Night in Georgia. And it's, I've spent a lot of time driving home on rainy nights in Georgia. <laughs> but to listen to that, uh, I forget the guy's name that, the guy's name that sang it, Rawls, I think his name was. Anyways, but driving home at night in the rain and listening to that song, and the windshield wipers are getting the rain off the, the windshield, but you can hear the rain in the song. It was just very soothing. Even if I had a very upsetting visit, it was still, very soothing <laughs> to listen to that driving home. But listening to waves, listening to uh, the ocean, uh, these things have a very calming effect. And I'm, I don't, we don't have time to go into the physiology, but there's actually things that happen. You get around waterfalls, there's a lot of positive ions in the air, and it just does something to your body. Uh, these are things that happen, and these are the benefits that we lose whenever we go home to our apartment and it's four walls and you can't see anything. But we've, we've created environments that people live in that are driving them crazy today. In many cases, they don't know it. They don't know it. <clears throat> You're going for a walk in a natural area or a green area. I've noticed some of our employees over there by the office, if you walk down around the corner from us, it's basically some buildings, but there's grass, there's trees. And these Canadian geese that you got to watch out where you're stepping. Uh, you got to have a challenge when you go for a walk. <laughs> but, you know, I've noticed some of our people, they go for a walk, and they're busy on their phone, and they're busy sending messages. The walk is good physical exercise for the body, but this is not good for the mind. You know, it, we can pride ourselves on being efficient. I'm getting my exercise and I'm still getting my job done. You know, sometimes we just need to relax the brain for five minutes. Just, just let it die. Let it not die, but let it <laughs> stop stimulating it. Stop stimulating it and breathe in some fresh air. And it's fairly fresh here. You know, you're not living in Los Angeles. Out there, you just don't breathe because you don't know what you're getting. Uh, <clears throat> but just stop and listen. we got a little stream down behind the office over there. Just go down and walk and stand by the stream a little bit and listen to the water going over the rocks. It'll do something for you. It'll do something for you. If God has designed the universe for our benefit, not as a terrible place to be, 
But why do these things happen? Why, why does a person's heart rate go down, blood pressure go down? Why do they manage stress better if they're exposed to nature? What goes on in the body during this period of time? I've described some of it, these physiological effects. One of the things it does when you're in nature and close to it is that uh, the sights and sounds of nature stimulate what is called our sympathetic nervous system. And this is our fight or flight reaction. Somebody comes up and sticks something in your back and says, give me your money. Your body reacts. It secretes certain hormones that, that, that get you excited. Your heart rate really goes up. Uh, <clears throat> exposure to natural environments, just the opposite happens. It stimulates your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest system where you slow down. You slow down. So just a change of environment impacts our body physiologically, and it also impacts our body mentally. Mentally. Children playing in nature, and these are studies, and there's literally dozens and dozens of these studies. This just isn't theory. These are things that they're documenting and have been documenting for the last 20, 30 years. Now, for medical schools and nursing schools, sometimes this takes 20 or 30 years to get into the curriculum. But these are studies that are being done literally all over the place. Duke University, it's a very prestigious university here in the South, has a department that's totally devoted to mental and spiritual health. Mental and spiritual health. They don't understand what we do about everything, but they understand quite a bit. Harvard University is making the same type of studies. So these aren't fringe things that you read about in health food stores. (laughs) These are things that medical doctors are being exposed to today if their professors are on target. But children playing in nature where they can play outside and they can climb over rocks and climb up into trees, it increases their memory. It helps them make decisions. Should I climb out on this limb or should I not climb out on this limb? Am I getting too high? What will happen if I fall down? You've got to make a decision doing those things. If you're playing in your basement with a, a rubber pad on the floor and pads on the walls and all rubber toys, you don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> you can do whatever you want to do. Remember Mr. Herman, a registrar in Pasadena years ago. He grew up on a farm. He said, I think every child should have a pet. Because they can't mistreat the pet because the pet will go, <laughs> if you don't treat it nice, it'll let you know. Uh, but you learn lessons dealing with live creatures. But children, their memory increases, their decision-making skills increase, their self-worth increases. You know, when you cut down a tree as a little boy, that's, you've, you've had this big accomplishment. <laughs> Or if you climb up this hill, you can turn around and go, <laughs> I conquered the hill. But you, know, you can accomplish things. You can accomplish things. It gives you a feeling of, of self-worth. Kids that grow up outside have fewer behavioral disorders. You know, it's, it's a blessing. You know, one of the things we did, we relocated a couple times when our boys were young. And fortunately, we were able to find a house on the edge of a subdivision, and they had a woods behind them that belonged to them. 
and the deer. <laughs> and they could explore. And they could build forts. Uh, they could dam up streams. They could do all kinds of things like that. But just providing that kind of environment. Fortunately, my mom and dad bought a house, again, on the edge of a subdivision. There was a farm behind us. Now, it belonged to the farmer, but that's what he thought. <laughs> we thought it belonged to us. Because <laughs> we climbed through the fence, and we were king of the woods. But we, could, we could roam over the whole thing. Again, if, if you're in an apartment block or something, and that may be all that sometimes we can afford. Uh, you know, we lived in Pasadena for about 10 years, and about, I don't know, first three or four or five we lived on a street called Hurlbutt Street, and we wished somebody would hurl us <laughs> off that street because <laughs> we were broken into two or three times. I think my wife went down to pay the rent one morning, and I don't think she locked the door. She came back, and our television was gone. And she called me at work. She said, did you take the television to get fixed? I said, I didn't know it was broken. <laughs> somebody watched her go out the door. They came in, took the television. It was gone by the time she got back. Another night, uh, I'd rented a, a floor shampooer, and we shampooed the carpet, and then we went up to my brother-in-law's house, and we were going to shampoo his. I locked the door, and we had one of these chain locks on the inside. We came back, and I had to, as I'm unlocking the chain thing, I looked, there's plaster all over the floor. Somebody had tried to get in, Saw the chain lock was there, tried to push them through three or four times, didn't work. If they'd had one more push, it probably would have. But there was plaster all over the floor. This was second or third time we were broken into living there. Again, these things can happen in the country, but they're much more prone to happen in crowded urban areas, especially in low-rent districts where we were living at that time. <clears throat> But contact with nature has many, many numerous, has actually numerous positive benefits on physical and mental health. I want to give you one or two quotes here very quickly. Now, these come from professional people. This one comes from a woman down in Australia who was a professor at a public health school, School of Public Health. And this is a result of looking over quite a bit of research. She said, human beings depend on nature not just for food and water and shelter, but also for their emotional, psychological, and spiritual needs. For emotional, psychological, and spiritual needs. We need contact with the natural world. Another American researcher made the comment, spending time in nature... Uh, <clears throat> is a major, in other words, nature plays a major role in determining a person's overall health. And spending time in nature is a powerful, inexpensive public health tool for preventing mental illness. Now, these are medical studies. This is not just some theories. These are, this is actually supported by research. Now, how does this relate to the Bible? Let me give you the scriptures. You can probably be familiar with them, jot them down. We'll turn to a couple of them. But in Genesis 2.15, it talks about God put Adam and Eve where? In a high-rise in Jerusalem? No, he put them in a garden. He put them in a garden where there was a river, 
So there's running water. There were trees, at least two, (laughs) of good and evil, probably a few more. There were animals there, because that was his job, name the animals. So you have water, you've got trees, you've got flowers, you've got food, you've got um, animals there. So they had contact with nature. That was the environment God chose for the first two human beings, because he wanted to give them a good start. You know, he could have put them in a high-rise building someplace. He could have built a nice concrete and steel house. He put them in a garden where there was a lot of natural things. Turn to Psalm 23, and I want you to read it with this concept in mind of being close to nature and that having a soothing effect. Now, David was a shepherd, so he spent a good bit of time out in the hills, out with the animals, where he could see, away from a lot of people. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, I won't have any desires that can't be filled. He makes me. Interesting. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Sometimes we have to do that with our kids. <laughs> sit down and be quiet. No, sit down and be quiet. Just, just be quiet. Now, that's hard. But, you know, if they do that, they calm down. I think Mr. Weston did this with the campers up at camp. You sit them down and you read to them. They go to sleep if they want, but that's part of the idea. <laughs> After running around all day long, just sit down. And if you sit still long enough, you get sleepy. So it says here, God, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He didn't say lie down in the ashes. He didn't say lie down on a bed of spikes to see how much pain you can endure. He said lie down in green pastures. And when you do that, besides still waters, he said, it restores my soul. It restores my soul. I feel refreshed. If you're in an inner city area, get yourself a nice big picture and look at it before you go to bed. And just let your thoughts go. I got a picture with for my wife recently. We had quite a negotiation over this because <laughs> going to replace something she already had. <laughs> but I found a picture of a giraffe, a mother giraffe and a baby giraffe, with Mount Kilimanjaro in the background, kind of partly covered with clouds. And when you look at that, your mind wants to go into the picture because it's so peaceful. It's so peaceful. Just to You know, I've flown over Mount Kilimanjaro a couple of times, but just to actually see it there and your mind goes back to certain things, but it's extremely peaceful. When you look at scenes of nature with water, you know, some of the uh, English uh, landscape painters, 1600s, 1700s, it's beautiful pictures. And usually there's a body of water, a lake with a reflection off of it, maybe some hills in the background, I think we've got a picture hanging in our office up there of some Irish deer. 
And when you put glass in front of it, you lose some of it. But you've got a big deer in the front and some other ones, and they're up in the hills of Ireland. And a little bit of mist there and just, I want to go back to Ireland. (laughs) I mean, it's that type of feeling. That art can be very powerful. Music can be very powerful. We'll talk about that a little bit more, too. But God put Adam and Eve in a garden, and this is not just a bedtime story. This is there, There's principles here that a natural environment is where God wants us to be. You look at some of the prophecies for the future. Micah 4.4 4 says everybody's going to have their own vine and fig tree. You can't have that on your rug in your living room. You make a mess for one thing. But to have a vine and a fig tree, you've got to have a little bit of land. And where there's vines and figs, there's going to be birds. And there'll be some animals there who would like to compete with you for the food. <laughs> but this is the environment God is going to create. Isaiah 35, it talks about the whole world is going to be restored. The deserts are going to blossom. You know, when we lived in, in, in Phoenix, every once in a while in the 10 year, the, the whatever years we were there, I think we were there about five years once in a while, we had a real wet spring, and all of a sudden, that desert was a carpet of flowers. The seeds were there, but they didn't sprout unless it was water. So we get water to some of these dry areas, things are going to change. It's going to be absolutely beautiful. Isaiah 11, it talks about the lion and the lamb and the child will lay down together. We're going to have to, God's going to have to change the nature of animals because this would be a very dangerous situation. <laughs> you know, the lion would take care of the child and take care of the lamb at the same time. But for that to happen, you're going to have to have children fairly close to a natural area uh, <clears throat> where wildlife can move, the edge of a woods or something, or a stream area. So if you have a city, but there's there's water, there's streams, and some wildlife habitat, uh, some wildlife right-of-ways, they call them, you're going to have a totally different system. And it's going to impact us in some very powerful ways. Revelation 22 talks about the New Jerusalem. Again, it's going to be a city, but there's a river there. It's called the Water of Life. There's probably going to be some Scottish people there. You know, whiskey is called the water of life in Scotland. (laughs) But these are going to be, this is the environment that God is going to create, and we're going to help recreate for people to live in. I think one of the things I've commented from time to time is if somebody is a contractor and they're building apartments, they ought to make the person live in the apartments for six months And if they come out sane, then they can rent the apartment to somebody else. (laughs) But we're building things today to stack people together and on top of each other. Again, if you're in one of those those places, get a nice picture. (laughs) Get a nice picture where you can kind of escape a little bit, too, and be inspired by. You look at, maybe do this as an experiment for yourself. You can go on the Internet. Look up some of these beautiful pictures. Look at it for you know, 10, 15 seconds. See how you feel. Then go to something in modern art where you got these people that have been cut in half and all kind of stuff and blocks and whatever. And, and look at it for a couple of seconds and see how you feel. 
See how it affects you. And then go back to the, the nature pictures and see how that affects you. So anyways, I want to talk about <clears throat> principle number one, that contact with nature is important. It's important for physical health. It's important for mental health and spiritual health. Let's look at one other scripture. I forgot to look at it. Psalm 121. <clears throat> you know, when you read the scriptures with this perspective in mind, I think they come alive in a very different way. Psalm 121. <clears throat> David mentions here, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. He's up someplace where he could see or he was looking at hills and he's asking this philosophical question. From where does, where does my help come from? He's thinking some deep thoughts. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And when you get up on top of a hill or a mountain, and you get a perspective from up there. How do you feel? It's kind of like, wow, I'm on top of the world. You begin thinking bigger thoughts. Bigger thoughts. You look at those hills and realize God made them. You look up in the sky at nighttime. If you can see the sky. <laughs> if you can see the stars because of the light pollution in, in cities. I was with a farmer one time down in Mississippi. About 2 o'clock in the morning, went for a walk. And the Milky Way, there's no light pollution there. There's no street lights down there. It looks like somebody took a big salt shaker and just sprinkled it the whole way across the sky. It was just, wow. And you think what God did and how small we are. And it really puts us in a totally different perspective. You know, in cities where you can't see the stars, all you see is the blinking neon lights has a totally different impact. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my strength. So he's thinking about deeper philosophical, spiritual things when he has a perspective. Jesus did not grow up in Jerusalem. He grew up in the hill country of Palestine. As a kid, he probably walked over those hills. You know, a number of his analogies, he talks about foxes have holes and birds have nests. Well, when you're walking around, you see a fox going into a hole. You see a bird going into a nest. You see how everything fits together. talks about he went up on a mountain to pray. Why would you go up there to pray? Because you can probably look out from that mountain and you get a different perspective. I was a camper and a counselor at a church camp. I was growing up in Ohio. And we didn't have a, well, we did have a meeting hall, but... We had our evening, what they call Vesper services. We walk up a hill, and they had cleared out an area on top of the hill or on the edge of the hill, and we sat on some benches up there, and the camp director would give us a little talk. But we could sit there and look the whole way across the valley. I remember one night, and I can still see this picture in my mind, a farmer was cutting some hay on the opposite hill. We couldn't hear the tractor, but we could see the hay going down, and the cows were in another field. It was just... It was really relaxing. It was very inspiring to have that perspective from being up in a hill. So Jesus utilized a natural environment. He grew up in it, and it looks like he's going to recreate some of these natural environments for other people to grow up in because he is a loving God. He's a loving God. 
And he wants to share his creation with his children, with us. So contact with nature is not something we're talking about uh, hugging trees. (laughs) We're not going to build a big totem pole someplace uh, or bow down to worship squirrels or whatever. But just contact with the natural world is extremely powerful. Let's look at another one. Biblical principle number two, religion is related to physical and mental health. Religion is related to physical and mental health. And that comes as a big surprise, especially to the medical and the psychological and the psychiatric communities today. Here, Freud, he was a psychiatrist and he came up with a lot of theories. One of his theories was that Religion is not only a symptom of mental illness, it is a cause of mental illness. Religion is not only a symptom of mental illness, but a cause of mental illness because it suppresses natural desires. He's talking about sex and creates a lot of guilt. And if we just get rid of guilt, then people are going to be happier. Well, it doesn't work that way. But this thinking has influenced uh, medical education for about a century or so. They came across another uh, paper written by an MD. Now, he went through medical school with professors that were influenced by Freudian thinking. He says, I was told by, by my professors in medical school that religion is harmful. However, research shows that about 80% of the cases, it's positive. About 80% of the times has a very positive effect. And there's just literally, again, been dozens of studies in this area. One quote I came across was, religion based on the Judeo-Christian tradition. So religion based basically on the Bible for the most part has a wide range of physical and mental uh, benefits or wide range of benefits to physical and mental health. And just looking what religion does, we're not talking about the truth necessarily. We're just talking about a, a Christian religion based on the Bible. Religion based on the Bible has rules for living. Rules for living. The Ten Commandments, don't lust, don't covet. Don't commit fornication. Don't get drunk. Don't abuse your body. These are rules for living. And if you follow those, you're going to be better off. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just looking briefly at these rules for living. This is what you find in the Bible. And if you're going to try to live by what's in the Bible, these are behaviors that you will try to avoid. Again, you'll be tempted with these things, depending on who you hang around. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, it says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, righteousness, Psalm 119, verse 172, all thy commandments are righteousness. So the unrighteous, those that break the commandments of God, will not be in the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Now, these are the behaviors you're going to want to avoid if you have strong religious beliefs. And these are behaviors that are considered in the health field high-risk behaviors. 
You do these things, you're going to be out on some very thin ice. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals. You know, why is AIDS much more prevalent among homosexuals? Because they do things that open themselves up to these things. Why is suicide higher? Well, because they feel guilty and they feel odd. No, it's not a satisfying lifestyle. So neither uh, homosexuals, sodomites, neither thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. This is party time. You can buy these T-shirts, party, party, party. I'm a party animal, whatever. Sounds good, sounds exciting if you've never been there. You know, I lived in a fraternity house for three years in college. And uh, some of the guys like to play drinking games, uh, see how much they could drink. And I watched my buddies hanging over a toilet (laughs) for half an hour. And then they didn't want to get up the next day because they couldn't walk. And then I watched them do it again a month later. Because this was fun. Didn't look like fun. Didn't taste like fun. Didn't feel like fun. But that was the thing that many guys did at that time. And there were other things. But this is the revelers that God says, you don't want to do those things. But these have health impacts. These have health impacts on your body. So if you follow these guidelines, you're not going to do some of these things, and you're going to be protected as a result. Religion provides social support. You just go to a church. You're going to be part of a body, part of a group of people, and they're going to accept you in. Again, it doesn't matter what you believe so much. I'm just in this sense. It provides the social support. And this is something we really should be doing for each other. Somebody's sick or not feeling well, call them up. How are you doing? How are things going? Let people know that you care. This is part of our job as a Christian, part of our responsibility. So religion provides social support. It prevents loneliness. Prevents loneliness. Notice the scripture here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again, some of these scriptures may not be that real until you start digging into them. A little bit. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Nine and ten, verses nine and ten. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when they fall. And sometimes we have problems. What's our natural reaction? We want to withdraw. We don't want to talk to anybody. We don't want anybody to see us. We want to go hide. And that's probably one of the worst things that we can do. If you're having a problem, talk to somebody. You call the ministers, call a friend, say, look, I'm having some problems. I need somebody to talk to. And again, it's not just religious people that understand these things. What was one of the most popular songs that Barbara Streisand used to sing? People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. You know, when something's happening in your life, 
get some help. Call to somebody, say, look, I need somebody to talk to. These are biblical principles. And true religion should help people come to understand these things. A trend that has taken place over the last couple hundred years, not just the movement to cities, but there's been a social shift from what is called a social-centric group of people or a social-centric society to an egocentric society. A social-centric society tend to exist in rural areas, especially 50 years ago, where you're harvesting your crop, you call a couple of other farmers, bring your tractor, (laughs) help me get my corn crop in. My uncle used to do that. I was a kid. We used to be playing outside. We weren't big enough to drive the tractor at that time, but it was exciting. You wake up at 7.30 in the morning, 8 o'clock, and three or four or five tractors come into the the, uh, the backyard and the uh, big wagons behind them, and then they load up and go out to the field, and they come in at lunchtime, and my aunt would have a big spread of food out on a big table in the yard, and then they'd finish off in the afternoon, and everybody goes home. If they were building a barn, they get everybody together. In two, three, four, five days, they got a barn. But it was social-centric. People were focused on each other. Today, it's egocentric. We come home, go into our locked gate in our community, unlock the door, go into our house, and I'm at home. Turn on the television set. Have some peace. <laughs> but we're not aware of what's going on around us. That's one of the benefits of religion. Mr. Ames talked about this yesterday or last week. Gratitude and thankfulness. Gratitude and thankfulness have very positive effects on the mind. If you look in your hymn book, Psalm 105, 106, 107, And Psalm 136, we sing psalms about these things, but they're give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. My psychologists have figured out if you sit down before you go to bed and make a list of everything that you're thankful for, you write a journal, you'll sleep better. You'll function better. Now, they figured that out. But the Bible says give thanks to God. Morning, noon, evening. And if you're thanking God for everything that you have, sometimes our personal problems of that day get pretty small. When we realize what we have to be thankful for, the comment I made in the beginning, the communication I had with a gentleman that's a little bit older than I am, and I can pick on him that way. He said, when you get to our age, every day above ground is a good day. (laughs) It's something we can be thankful for. Sometimes we think as we're getting older, well, we're not useful anymore, and nothing, nothing's any good anymore. No, no, no. You can be very useful. You can smile at somebody. You can pat a little kid on the shoulder and say, you look pretty today, or you look good today at church. You've got to be careful, though, because these can all be turned around on you in the world we live in today. But just being thankful. Maybe try that. Before you go to bed tonight, sit down and make a list of at least five things that you can be thankful for. And Mr. Ames mentioned a lady that had done this 31,000 times (laughs) or came up with 31,000 things to be thankful for over a period of time. But psychologists have found that type of thing on their own, but the Bible points us in those directions. 
religion also provides a very powerful and comforting perspective. A powerful and comforting perspective on life. Whenever you read Romans 8.28, that all things work to the good for a person who's called according to the purpose of God. God's not calling everyone today. He's calling a few. When you realize you are among the few that are being called, and you know that God is watching over you, and things may be getting difficult, but you can read that scripture and pray about it and say, God, you have said that all things will work to the good for those that are called according to your purpose. Joseph spent, what, seven years in prison? And he was there until the circumstances were right and God got him out of prison in a very interesting way. But God had a purpose for his life. Another scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it says, You'll not be tried above that which you are able to bear, and that God will make a way of escape. He'll make a way out. And again, this will be in his time and in his way. But this is where faith comes in. We need to know that God exists. We need to have a relationship with God and be patient and let him work within us. Religious studies or studies on religion and health have shown that people with strong religious beliefs and who attend church regularly, in other words, they're around people regularly, Again, this has nothing to do, we're not talking about the truth here, we're just talking about physical facts. They're healthier, they take better care of themselves, they have more social contact, they avoid high-risk behaviors that damage health. And when they surveyed religious people compared to atheists, they found that 42% of the religious people were happy. (laughs) Only 29% of the atheists (laughs) were happy. (laughs) 42 versus 29%. Religious is not dangerous. Now, it can be misused. We understand that. But if you're following a biblical basis for your religion, your life is going to be different. It's going to be better. One other thing I want to mention while we're talking about this, a book came out just recently entitled Being There, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the first three years of life, matters. Why it's important for mothers to be around their children for the first three years of life. This was written by a woman who was a licensed social worker in New York. And she said, I began seeing things in children, mental illnesses and mental problems later, and their mom was busy working, and their dad was probably busy doing other things too. And she said, it really is important for mothers to spend time. And again, you've got biblical principles here. In Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, it talks about mothers loving their children and being keepers at home, not kept at home, (laughs) but keepers at home, homemakers where you actually create an environment for that child to grow up in. And the studies show that where mothers do that, 
Where mothers do that, the kids grow up emotionally healthier, happier, feeling more secure, and they're more resilient. Things come along, they they can deal with it better because they've watched their mom show them how to do things. So these are very powerful. You might want to get a hold of the book. It looked like it would be a very easy read, but it's got some very interesting uh, contents in it. Being there, why prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters. She said, I've been interviewed on a lot of conservative talk shows, but NPR will not talk to me. Some of the more liberal uh, stations don't want to interview me because they don't, the ladies don't want to hear what I'm saying in this book. That being there really does matter. So the point I want to make then concluding here with point number two is that biblical religion has a positive impact on physical and mental health. It's not harmful. It's not outdated. has very powerful impact. And again, the effects are pretty much the same. Uh, <clears throat> Let's go to number three, and this will be the final one. Biblical principle number three, prayer influences physical, mental, and spiritual health. Prayer influences physical, mental, and spiritual health. Again, when you look back 100 years, we've been influenced by an educational system that's been influenced by people that did not believe in God. A fellow by the name of John Dewey, I think he was born about 1860, died about 1950, so he's probably 80, 90 years old. Had a very powerful influence on American education and from here, other parts of the world. He was a secular humanist. He was secular and he believed in human beings, not in God. He did not believe in a supernatural. He did not believe in a God. And he did not believe in right and wrong. It's up to you figure out what's right and wrong. His modern counterpart today, Richard Dawkins, this atheist, very aggressive atheist in England, has made comments that prayer is a waste of time. People just talking to an imaginary figure in the, in the sky who doesn't hear and doesn't care. So why pray? Now that's the educational approach. Scientific approach, when they study the human brain, what happens in the human brain when people pray? They actually put a a machine on you and inject some dye, and they can see what's active, what parts of your brain are active when you do certain things. When a Christian who, following the Judeo-Christian tradition, begins to pray, and they define prayer as like talking to God or talking to a person. And when you read Matthew 6... Jesus' model prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, holy be your name. Thank you for this, thank you for that, guide me there. You're talking to God. And also Matthew 6 talks about uh, don't use vain repetitions. Holy Mary, Mother of God, blessed art thou among women. If you're grown up Catholic, you go around the beads and you say certain things. If you're a Buddhist, every time you walk by a prayer wheel, you'll... You spin that prayer wheel, and these these prayers are going up to heaven. These are vain repetitions. The Bible says, don't do that. God says, talk to me as a father. When a person in a Judeo-Christian tradition prays, 
The frontal lobes of the brain are active. You can see it light up. The frontal lobes are where you make decisions. This is right, this is wrong. Where you reason, if I do this, this is going to happen. If I do that, that's going to happen. You also, your will, the source of will is there. I'm going to do it this way. This is all what happens in the frontal lobes of the brain. When a Christian prays, the frontal lobes are very active. When a Buddhist prays, and they've done these studies, the frontal lobe is very quiet. The part, the part that, light, that lights up is the occipital lobes on the back of your brain where your vision center is. You're focusing on an issue, or you're focusing on a dot, or you're focusing on a bird or something. You're meditating. But the frontal lobes are blank. When an atheist prays, or when a person speaks in tongues, the frontal lobes are inactive. Nobody's home. <laughs> Nobody's driving the car. <laughs> They're totally, if you're an atheist, who do you pray to? God doesn't exist. The question is, if you're speaking in tongues, who is guiding the tongue? The frontal lobes are blank. You're not making a decision. Something else is driving the mouth. Very interesting. A couple of other things, and then we'll conclude. When you focus on something, and this gets into neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, when you focus on something for a period of time, you know, every time you pray, you pray about the same thing, about love, for example. I need to love my mom and dad more, or I need to love my child more, or I need to love my boss more. It's hard, but I need to love him more. The more you focus on one thing, your brain sets up a neural pathway. The nerves fire in the same order. If you're learning a song on a piano, the more you practice it, you build these neural pathways so it just becomes easier. If you're learning to throw a football, you use the same motion over and over and over. You develop a neural pathway. And if you pray about the same things, about praying, about uh, forgiving, about loving, you're going to build a pathway. It takes about 21 days to build a habit. So you pray about the same thing every day, several times a day. You're going to begin thinking that way. Now, with God's Spirit, you're going to have extra help. But just from a physical standpoint, you're going to be wiring your brain differently. And the same thing goes if you're angry. And you allow your brain to think about the same thing. Oh, every time I'm around that person, I just... And you do this over and over and over, you're going to build a neural pathway. And it's going to be much easier to slide into that thinking. If you smoke cigarettes, it's a learned behavior. You get a chemical stimulant, but you also do things through this neural pathway that you... It's a learned behavior. To unlearn it, you've got to do something else. But the point is, prayer can change the brain. We're talking just in physical ways. And they can notice these things from physical studies. Prayer can change the brain. Now, with God's Spirit, that's going to change it even more. But these are physical things. There are reasons why David said, as recorded in the Psalms, uh, that he prayed three times a day. 
Psalm 55, verse 17. He prayed morning, noon, and evening, and probably other times. In Daniel 6, verse 10, Daniel prayed under duress. He knew that if he was going to get caught, <laughs> he could lose his life. But he still prayed three times a day. He repeated this behavior. He repeated that behavior. First Thessalonians 5, 17. Paul says there, pray always. Pray without ceasing. You know, I would go visiting before we had GPSs. Some of these places weren't on the map. And I would pray before I get into the area. God, please help me find it. And it was more than one time I looked up and there was a telephone pole with a number on it <laughs> right where I needed to be. And I said, thank you very much. So even without GPSs, we could do our job. <laughs> You know, in James 5, verses 14 through 16, let's go and read that, the whole thing. It's talking about prayer and one of the benefits of prayer. James 5, and verses 14 through 16. We need to read all the verses that are there. Verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. In the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. You know, so we do this. But notice also in verse 16, it says, Confess your trespasses to one another. And sometimes we call the minister, we get anointed, and we, why hasn't anything happened? Have we taken time to ask the question, what have I done? <laughs> Because this might be the fifth or sixth time I've asked for an anointing. What, what have I done that might be leading to this situation? Well, I only stayed up all night for three nights in a row studying for an exam. Well, our body's going to wear out if we do that. I only got drunk last night. I don't feel good. Well, you stop doing certain things. You start doing other things. Now it says confess to, your, you know, to each other. You don't have to go around and tell everybody all your sins, but just taking time to acknowledge, what have I done? What can I learn? You know, I've learned in traveling that if I don't get enough sleep, if I eat too much, uh, then I'm going to come down with something just in a matter of days. So in traveling, I try and make sure I get enough sleep. And in spite of everybody saying, well, I haven't seen you for a year, sit down and have this meal. <laughs> it's just too much to eat. Uh, sometimes I have to say thank you very much, but I really can't eat anymore. Uh, because if I do, we're both going to regret it. <laughs> but we just have to learn to live within the limits that we have. Sometimes we say, too, when, you know, I... Asked for prayers, I was anointed, but I wasn't healed. Doesn't God hear my prayers? Read on your own, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It mentions there, Paul says, I besought God on three separate occasions for this thorn in the flesh that I have, which was apparently an eye problem. May have picked up uh, in an unsanitary place where he may have stayed. But God's answer was, you'll make it, Paul. You'll be fine. You know, Paul wrote 14 books in the New Testament. He was a very powerful intellectual. God may have figured, Paul, you need something just to <laughs> slow you down a little bit and realize that you need to depend on me, not on you. 
Now, we'll find out one of these days when we have a chance to talk to Paul in the resurrection. But in that case, God was in charge. Paul healed people, but in his case, he wasn't because God had a plan and he had a purpose. So, brethren, I've tried to cover three principles this afternoon, three biblical principles that have a powerful influence on our physical health, on our mental health, our emotional health, and our spiritual health. You know, we're living in a period of time, 2 Peter 3, 3, where it says, In the last days, scoffers will come, and they will make fun of the Bible. They'll make fun of God. They'll make fun of people that try and live by this book. And yet God says, if you follow these principles, things are going to go better for you. They'll go better for you. They'll go better for your family, for young people that are willing to take a few shots from their peers and say, look, I'm going to do it this way. I know you might think it's crazy, but this is the way I'm going to go because I know it's going to be better in the long run. The Bible is not a textbook of medicine, but it does contain very powerful and important principles that promote health and prevent disease, that promote mental health as well as physical health. So I would say in conclusion, as we pick up the Bible, I would say to your health, to your health.